Welcome to the Awesomers.com podcast. If you love to learn, and if you're motivated to expand your mind, and heck, if you desire to break through those traditional paradigms and find your own version of success, you are in the right place. Awesomers around the world are on a journey to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. We believe in paying it forward, and we fundamentally try to live up to the great Zig Ziglar quote, where he said, you can have everything in your life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. It doesn't matter where you came from, it only matters where you're going. My name is Steve Simonson, and I hope you will join me on this awesomer journey. If you're launching a new product manufactured in China, you will need professional, high-resolution, Amazon-ready photographs. Because Simo Global has a team of professionals in China, you will oftentimes receive your listings photographs before your product even leaves the country. This streamlined process will save you the time, money, and energy needed to concentrate on marketing and other creative content strategies before your item is in stock and ready for sale. Visit simoglobal.com to learn more, because a picture should be worth 1,000 keywords. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. You are listening to the Awesomers.com podcast episode number 55. And as the tradition has been well established now, all you have to do is go over to Awesomers.com slash 55 to find all of the relevant show notes, details, links, and in this case, a link to the very special book that is being released today by our special guest, Rick Ciceri. Now, Rick has helped major brands, including uh, brands that you've heard of, uh, GoPro, George Foreman Grill, and others, put together these billion-dollar brands, all through response advertising, direct response advertising, as we like to call it. His uh, current book that he's just released, and now available, is called Building Billion-Dollar Brands, and it aims to put valuable knowledge of the big brands in the hands of inventors, small business owners, uh, entrepreneurs of any kind, Amazon sellers, e-commerce guys, and others to create innovative, successful marketing campaigns. Now, Rick is a best-selling author, speaker, and consultant, and he's a brand strategy guru for sure. And we're lucky that Rick today is bringing his, his expertise to talk about uh, branding and video marketing and so much more. Today's a very special episode because we're going to do a part one episode of a two-part series uh, with Rick. And these are both long-form interviews. And we talk about Rick, Rick's origin story mostly today and two of the brands, which include a little discussion about the Juice Man, which was one of Rick's uh, first brands, as well as the Sonicare toothbrush, which he participated in building that brand, and the George Foreman Grill. These are powerhouse, powerhouse brand names. And then in our series tomorrow, we're gonna talk further about even more. So this is the first in a two-part series. Buckle up, it's gonna be exciting. Tell a friend, this is the this is prime time stuff. Let's giddy up. Hello, Awesomers. It's Steve Simonson, and today I'm joined by my very special guest, Rick Cesari. Rick, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to it. Good. Uh, as a matter of just housekeeping, we need to establish for the audience if I pronounce your name right or wrong, because uh, my record's not great. It's Cesari. Ooh, I got it wrong. Dang it. I swear. <laughs> Most people do. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the, the fact is, uh, full disclosure to the audience, Rick just said his last name in the last 30 seconds probably to me, and that's the lack of uh, retention I have. So my apologies, uh, but you're in good company because it's the majority of the time I get it wrong. Um, so first of all, Rick, I've already read in the bio, the people already kind of have a, a general big picture sense of you, but in your own words, kind of tell us 
um, you know, where you live today and what, what takes up your time day to day right now? Okay, so right now I live in Seattle, Washington. I ran a direct response marketing agency for over 25 years based in Seattle here. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on and some of the different uh, projects and, and brands to help build. Sorry, I have a cuckoo clock in the background. <laughs> no problem. That's a new sound effect we've added in Awesomers. Anytime Rick says something that we uh, want to question, you'll hear that cuckoo sound. So keep your ears open. Go ahead, Rick. All right. So it's it's worse right now just because it's the top of the hour. But anyway, uh, so I um, wound down the agency about a year ago and am more focused on uh, doing writing, consulting, and helping companies that are looking to launch a product or um, you know, want to grow their business, uh, help them do uh, strategy, and ma mainly from the standpoint of doing direct-to-consumer marketing. Yeah, and that is such an important part of the equation. Uh, a lot of people, they, they get confused about different marketing techniques. You know, well, I'm on the internet, so I just do internet marketing. Well, at the end of the day, direct response marketing, whether you do it on TV or the internet, when you're trying to get their audience to actually make an immediate action, like a buy, that's direct response marketing. Would you would you agree with that? Rick? Oh, absolutely. And you know what I tell everybody, I I, I like to talk to, about omni-channel marketing and multi-channel marketing, but all of it is done just like you mentioned under the umbrella of direct response, direct marketing. I'm always trying to, uh, you know, you've, you've built some successful businesses. I'm always trying, if you spend a dollar on advertising, you want to get two or three or four dollars in return. And that's really how you can build a, a, a big successful business uh, by having that mentality and always thinking from a direct response standpoint. Without a doubt, it's uh, just as a contrast to the awesomers out there listening, another type of marketing that would be a contrast in my mind to this would be just general awareness marketing. Right when you see the the big toothbrush company who's like, hey, we got the best toothbrush, uh, just know about us. That's a different thing than go here and buy my toothbrush right now. Yeah, and, that, and basically, if you had to really break it down to the basic fundamentals of the difference between when you call awareness, that's also called brand marketing. Um, basically, they try to entertain people. They aren't trying to get the viewer to take a specific action. Whenever we do some type of direct response advertising, we always have some type of um, offer or reason for people to either go to the website, call an 800 number, uh, download uh, you know, a lead gen piece of information. So there's always some type of offer involved in, in direct response. Yeah, and I think that's a very uh, a good breakdown, kind of the, the contrast between the two. Uh, it, both can be important, but for me as a small business guy, and uh, even my biggest stuff would only be modestly considered medium, you know, you, even at 100 million bucks, that's a, still a Scooby snack compared to the big brands. Uh, I'm all about trying to figure out the ROI on my spend, right? I, I don't have the luxury of saying, you know, I'm just going to put this million bucks into branding and, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping people will know my name more as a result of that million dollars. No, I put the <laughs> whatever amount, I want the money back. Yeah, absolutely. And and really, that's the secret to a lot of the um, brands and, and products we're going to talk about today is none of them started out with big budgets. They all started out as small businesses. 
and we were able to find some type of advertising channel where they could get a return on their investment. And then what they would do is take that money, put it back into advertising, and that's how they would grow, grow the business. And there's very few companies. I mean, if you already have enough money to spend a million dollars a year or month, whatever, on brand advertising, um, then you've already reached a level of success where you're kind of beyond you know, they don't need your or my help, really. So. <laughs> yeah, I understand that well. Uh, listen, you have such an amazing background that we're going to dive into some of that origin story kind of right from the beginning and carry on through to some of the amazing accomplishments you had. Uh, but we're going to do it right after this break. Catalyst 88 was developed to help entrepreneurs achieve their short and long-term goals in e-commerce markets by utilizing the power of shared entrepreneurial wisdom. Entrepreneurship is nothing if not lessons to be learned. Learn from others. Learn from us. I guarantee that we will learn from you. Visit Catalyst88.com because your success is our success. A giddy up. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, guys, we're back again. Steve Simonson here. Uh, Rick Cesari. Rick Cesari. I did it again. Cesari. You know, that A. We, I know. Really everyone wants to make it, it a long A. Yeah. yeah, that would be uh, easier on me. Rick Cesari. Yes. All right. Good Lord. I'm going to have to go to the editing bay and get this one fixed. Uh, thank you again, Rick, for joining us. Um, I really respect, you know, a lot of the accomplishments you had. And I love just kind of your general nature of how you are trying to kind of work with and help entrepreneurs get better. And that's something I really respect. So thank you for doing that on behalf of all the entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, no, I, it's really, I feel like after all of the successes I've had over the last 25 years, I really get a lot of gratification of working with uh, people who are starting a business or have a business and are just looking for some answers and any knowledge I can share. It, it just feels great. Good. It does feel good. I have a similar feeling uh, when I'm able to impart a little uh, a lesson learned or maybe even wisdom. Uh, and the, the best part is it doesn't really require a lot of calories burnt on, on my part, right? It's kind of like, hey, here's a story. It happened to me. I don't know if it's applicable to you, but uh, hopefully it helps. And, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And usually what I find, and you probably find the same thing, and I don't do it for this reason, but as you do that more and more, I don't know, it just creates a snowball effect. And things come back to you in unexpected ways. And, and it's just a nice uh, situation when you're able to do that. So this is, you know, uh, again, I repeat this often. It's always uh, mentioned at the top of the show. Zig Ziglar says you can have everything you want in your life if you help enough other people get what they want in their life. And that's, <clears throat> that's what a guy like Rick does is he spends his time helping other people get what they want. And then that little, you know, the magic uh, law of reciprocity, whatever, it just kind of does its job and, and uh, opportunities show up. So Rick, let's, let, let's go back to the very beginning. Where were you born? So I was born in um, White Plains, New York, which is about 30 miles north of New York City. And um, my, uh, I grew up there till I was 15 years old, kind of had an idyllic childhood. We had an acre property with a little pond on it. I had seven brothers and sisters and um, every, everything was just great. But then when I was uh, 12 years old, my uh, dad, who was only 46 at the time, uh, passed away from a heart attack. So you can imagine a single mom with eight kids. Wow. And um, it, it all of a sudden, life changed pretty dramatically overnight. And um, she tried, we had a little uh, grocery store that my dad ran. 
And it's interesting because there's a lot of parallels, uh, some parallels with what Amazon's doing today with grocery delivery. You know, you always hear there's no new ideas. One of the things that we did at our grocery store was we would do free deliveries. And that's one of the things I helped out with as a teenager is I would buy, people would call in their um, order. We would box up the groceries and we had a panel van and we would deliver it out to people's houses. And so this is a concept that's been around for a long time. Just nobody was really able to take advantage of it like they do now. And, you know, this morning my wife was just ordering from Instacart. It made me remember about how I used to do that when, when I was a young teenager. So I, I learned business. My, my father was always entrepreneurial. I learned, um, I guess, to be entrepreneurial, but life really did change. And when I, and when he passed away, we stayed in New York for another couple of years, but then my family moved down to Daytona beach, Florida. We knew some people that were down there, kind of a big change. And, um, uh, I, I stayed there in high school. And again, you know, when I was a senior, uh, I had a really good friend and he and I decided that we would become dentists. And so when I went to college, I went back up north to a small school in Pennsylvania called Westminster College and studied biology. So I actually have a BS degree in biology. I never studied marketing traditionally uh, in school. <laughs> and um, my friend went on to become a dentist, and he's a dentist today in Ormond Beach, Florida. And I kind of took, after college, I moved back to Daytona Beach, and I was a little bit tired of school, so I became a bum for a year, and I was a bartender and a lifeguard. Um, but I was motivated to be successful and 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 make money. And I knew that both of those things, while fun when you're young, really weren't long-term careers. And I started reading a lot of books, two types of books, motivational books, and also books on how people became successful or made money. And one of the things that I always um, kept stumbling across is a lot of people or wealth had been built through real estate. And so I started... Uh, uh, reading a lot of books about that, going to seminars, and I went to a seminar. And I'm, I'm just to give your uh, listeners a time frame, and also it'll show them kind of how old I am. This was 1985, and um, I went to a seminar, did what the person told me, went out, bought a house, sold it in two weeks, and made about twelve thousand dollars. And at the time, that was like a million dollars. Lottery, me. baby! Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah. You know, I think a minimum wage back then was $3 an hour or something. So that was a huge amount, and I was hooked. And I wanted to just keep going out and doing that. But the person who was running the seminars, um, I was very grateful for what happened. So on my own, I just called up a local business magazine called Florida Trend. uh, I don't even know if it's still around. Basically told them the story of this person. They ran uh, an article about him, and that free PR helped – him gain credibility, but also helped him in the seminar business. So he asked me if I wanted to help him with marketing. And that's how my marketing career got launched. And at the time, again, this is going to, you know, sound funny to some of your listeners, the main way we were promoting the real estate seminars was using newspaper ads. And we would go from city to city. And basically, um, I call this category of marketing, we're going to talk about lots of different products, uh, for lack of a better word, get rich quick. And it not it's not, don't take it the wrong way. That's kind of not what we're doing. It's just kind of a category I call, you know, there's lots, you know, lots of information type seminars out there. And so one of the things we did, there was another real estate seminar based in California called Robert Allen, Nothing Down. And he was one of the first people to start using television 
to drive people into these free seminars. And we were seeing maybe 100 people at our seminars. He was seeing five, six, 700 people at his. So we said, we're going to make a half-hour TV show. And this is the very, very cutting edge of infomercials, direct response. Um, the reason it came about, not to go into too much detail, is President Reagan deregulated television. Before, you could only have eight minutes of, of advertising in every hour. He deregulated it and it opened up to the, to, to the half-hour advertising. So it was really through the real estate business that I learned um, how to do direct response marketing, direct-to-consumer marketing, because it, it's a very, you know, if you do any type of direct marketing or, or run any type of business, at the end of the day, there's a set of numbers that, that you follow that can run the business. And when we were using newspaper ads, we had a formula that if we could get people in the room for $10 per head, we knew that when we spoke to them, we could, we could convert a certain number and then we knew it could be profitable. Well, TV took that metric and really turned it upside down because it was the early days of direct response TV, just like the early days of the internet or early days of Amazon. It was a lot easier to make money before those areas matured a little bit. And um, we were seeing people in the room for, uh, you know, $5 a head, a dollar a head, and seeing literally thousands of people in one week. And we were able to build up the seminar business to one of the largest in the country in about two and a half years. And um, let's just say I, I didn't agree with the guy who was running the seminars uh, approach. It was a little dishonest. And so I left. And actually, that's when I moved out to Seattle. And I did a couple projects. Um, uh, I, I was a partner. And uh, feel free to ask any questions along the way. Yeah, I, I do have one uh, question. So as you, as I mean, it's a remarkable amount of um, growth, you know, over the course of just two years to, to kind of take that, that newspaper direct response. By the way, uh, for those listening at home, what Rick described is just a simple funnel, right? You put an ad in there, somebody comes in, you, you know, you try to convert them and get them to the seminar and buy the whatever the seminar sell. This is a normal funnel. This is uh, nothing new. I, I could actually imagine my daughter listening to this podcast and going, Dad, what's a newspaper? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that's, a, that's a story for another time. So, But it, it is fun to reflect back on this idea of you know, the very beginning days of infomercials when probably the leads were cheap and the airtime was plentiful, right? It was probably a lot easier. Is that how you found it to be at that time as um, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, whenever there's um, a way that's easy for people to make money, it attracts honest, ethical people, but it also attracts the opposite. And so and that and usually that's what ends up, um, I guess, killing the goose that lays the golden egg. There's a lot of people that take advantage of being able it's you know they over promise under deliver and some are just outright crooks and so that that always happens in every industry uh when it's new and and before things sort out but yeah it, it, this was a time that i would say was the golden age of um uh television direct response from uh and we'll talk about some of the projects that are, are products that we help launch that way um but I moved out after doing the real estate seminars, I moved out to Seattle here and a friend was in the fishing business and we did a project together. Uh, one of the things, again, this is a little thing people say, well, how do you find products or products and things? And again, this is a little uh, 
outdated, but I used to always go in the library and uh, look around in different sections. And in this case, it, it was, I, I looked in the, you know, how to make money section and I knew I had been successful doing real estate. And I said, well, why don't I try that in the stock market? And I found a book called How to Make a Million in the Stock Market, called up the author and he, and we basically made a half hour TV show, but used the, and this is an important lesson uh, because you'll see some lessons that I did way back in 1985, I used when we started marketing GoPro in 2011, 12, 13, you know, and, and help me. Because you said a funnel's a funnel and the distribution channels have changed somewhat, but the basic marketing principles have stayed the same. And that's really an important point that I try to convey to a lot of, a lot of people. Um, right, so let me just pop in there for a second, Rick, because I think... That is such a, a, a really relevant point. You know, it doesn't matter if this was the, you know, the, the dawn of infomercials. Uh, today, you might consider Facebook a very similar concept, right? Facebook's still at the very early stages uh, where, relatively speaking, the inventory's, you know, cheap. Now, it was cheap five years ago. It was less expensive five years ago. But, you know, it still has reasonable availability. And as the big brands come in, and as some of the, the hucksters come in, uh, we, we've recently there's a story about somebody selling, you know, kind of Amazon seminars in, in kind of that, you know, instead of the business opportunity space, which is respectable, and there's a lot of good people doing stuff, the, the guys who are just scam artists and, and yeah. uh, slimy, I just despise those people. And, and this, this idea of there's a way to make money in this opportunity it does attract that that negative space or that, those negative people. So it, it really doesn't matter if it's infomercials or Facebook. It, it, all the same stuff, whether it's funnels or scam artists, they're as old as time and they'll continue on. It's it's our mission to kind of uh, figure out how we can tell the good guys from the bad guys. So tell me tell me more about the Seattle stuff. I, I sorry to interrupt you there. No, no, I think that's a good uh, a really good point. And I think you know again to show. Um, you know, when I was learning marketing, again, I learned it by doing it, but also I read books um, that uh, I guess the people before me used to be successful. And back then it was direct mail and, and, and how other people did it. And so I think that for anybody wanting to know how to do marketing, there's kind of two phases to that. It's understanding the, the fundamentals that, have, that are always work regardless of the distribution channel then understanding the technology that you're using today to, to distribute the message. Like you said, Facebook is, a, is an absolute parallel to TV direct response, the same type of thing. And, and the important point to take away from that is the things that help make a TV infomercial successful would help make a Facebook ad successful too. And that's, that's why I've been able to be successful in marketing you know, for, for over 30 years. So anyway, let's keep going with the story. Um, came out to Seattle. Um, we made this show. Uh, just a, a, a real quick aside. My friend was in the commercial fishing business. I like fishing. He said, hey, let's go up to Alaska and do some long lining. We did that at a Kodiak, the boat we were in. Uh, you've seen the, you know, the deadliest catch on TV. We ran into a storm. Our boat sank. We had to be rescued by the Coast Guard. And we came back in. I remember making a phone call when we got in. We were at the Coast Guard station in Kodiak. And um, I called up, and we were testing our stock show that weekend. And I called up, and we had spent like 4000 on TV media on a national cable station. It doesn't even exist today. 
And I remember calling into the telemarketing company and they had received 12,000 in orders. So it was kind of like one of the worst days coupled with one of the best days. Because one of the things, if and you know from, from being in business and running advertising, if you have an initial success, you know then that you can take that and and ride it and and make it much bigger. So so that was became the first um, kind of success in in Seattle. And then this is where it ties together. I'd done a couple other little projects, weight loss and things like that. But I told you the story about my dad passing away from a heart attack. So I was always interested in nutrition. And you've heard people say it's important to follow your passion. And so I was very passionate about how you could stay healthy, prevent heart disease through what you ate. And I actually got into juicing. And this was in 1989. And my brother and I started a company uh, called Trillium Health Products. But our main product was the Juice Man Juicer and the Bread Man Bread Machine. And basically, we were teaching people to um, eat, a, eat a more of a plant-based diet as a way to good health. Not, not telling them to be vegetarians or anything. And juicing was a way, an easy way to get, get people there. So you talk about the success. We were in the right time at the right place with the right product. And that business grew from zero to 75 million in three and a half years. Ooh. And we sold it in 1993 to a company in Chicago called Salton Housewares. And um, I took a year off, uh, just you know, wanted to rest and recuperate because it was like riding a bucking Bronco with that fast growth. And at one time we had 160 employees and you, you've owned businesses and you know everything that comes with a fast-growing business. A and, pure delight, I'm sure. A pure delight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, believe me, the year off was well-earned. I've been there, done that. I, I get it, yeah. Yeah, so um, I got a call uh, from my former business partner in the juice business, um, and he said, there's a small company here called Optiva Corporation. They have a consumer product, and, they want, and they're interested in doing the type of marketing that you did. And it turns out Optiva Corporation was the makers of the Sonicare toothbrush. And I went over and spoke with them, and I ended up investing some money in the company and actually making a half-hour infomercial. And the problem with Sonicare toothbrush was it was a $150 product, and nobody knew what Sonic technology was. And if they would have put this on the retail shelf, nobody would buy it because the cheap, most expensive toothbrush out there were $2, $3, maybe an inner plaque cost $29 or something. So they had a really educational um, fence that they had to get over. Well, let me just jump in there, Rick, because I think that is a point that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially those brand builders out there, don't fully recognize. Just getting your product into big box or just getting it on a retail shelf or just putting it online doesn't mean it's going to sell, especially when you have this, this uh, education issue, right? If your comparison item is $3 and your item is $150, you know, and the person doesn't really have any uh, clarity as to why what's the difference you got a problem and so from my standpoint i think it's a big point to say you know that that product that we all now know everybody knows sonicare now right mm -hmm. super famous it's in every you know it's in costco it's in all, all these big boxes it's only because of the pioneering that you guys did at that time so i asked the listeners just to go back in time before anybody knew what sonicare was and try to imagine that because that was a, a different time and uh, go ahead and take us through that journey, Rick. Yeah, and I, let me back up for one second, Wait. and our because I want to. There's a, a common another common thread between the juicer business and Sonicare and things. 
And one of the things I have for anybody listening today, if they go to my website, rickcesari.com, they can download something that I call the five keys to building a great brand. And number one on there, and this isn't going to be news to you, Steve, is you have to identify a unique selling proposition and what, what it is about your product that makes it unique compared to every other product out there. And in the case of the juicer, now we, would, we didn't invent juicing. We didn't invent a juicer. The, there were two giant companies called Braun and Krupps out there making juicers, but they focused on the features of the product. Uh, you know, they had a half, hour, half horsepower motor, stainless steel parts, dishwasher safe, um, things like that. And when, what made us successful in the juicing business is that we said, what, what can we do to make our juicer different? So we focused on the benefits of drinking the juice. And we said, if you buy this machine and drink the juice, um, you'll have more energy, your cholesterol will be lower. And it was really just a uh, you know differentiator between our product and what was out there. And that message is what made all the difference. Now take that over into the Sonicare toothbrush, which we were talking about. What did Sonicare do different? Sonicare had something called sonic technology. Well, what was the benefit of that? They could clean beyond the bristles. So basically, we had the ability to reach the nooks and crannies between the teeth that other toothbrushes and the market couldn't. And so in our advertising, we could talk about how using this product uh, could really help you reverse gum disease. And that was the basis when we started doing our direct response advertising, uh, how we got people to respond to the message. And so again, um, unique selling proposition and positioning are two of the first things you should always think about when you're trying to build a brand. Now we're going to be sure we get those links uh, to your website uh, in the show notes and so forth. And and the you call this the five steps or five five, five keys to building a great brand. And I'll and I'll go through them as we go through and talk about some of the products and good, and, good. and how so, they apply. How did the the next step at Sonicare once you got uh, introduced to Optiva and so forth? What what was the steps? Yeah. That so happened? what what we did is I've always been a big believer. Here's another uh, lesson your listeners can take away. I've always been a big believer in selling through education. In other words, not hard sell. You have to buy this, hit hit people over the head with with a with price. I've always um, positioned my products in most cases as the top end of of from a pricing standpoint, because just the mentality, you can always go down in price and then try to build the marketing story to support that that higher price. So with the Sonicare um, uh, toothbrush, one of the things we did is we basically interviewed, uh, we went to the dental show, a dental show down in the Moscone Center in San Francisco. Sonicare had a booth there. This is a, a something that works to this day. If you are at a trade show and you have a booth, if you go down there and take a video camera and video people that come up to your booth and just talk to them and ask questions, you'll find out more about your product and what people like and what they don't like. And we were um, able to uh, go down there and interview some of the top dentists and periodontists in the world. And we use that as the basis for um, the, the marketing message with Sonicare. And really, it, it's, it was really also about building up credibility. That's another key thing. Um, people want to believe you have a good product, but you need to really establish the credibility. So if you hear the dean of the Harvard Business, uh, Harvard Dental School saying, I really like this product, it's different, it works, there, it, that's a much more believable message than 
than you as the product owner saying, hey, this is a great product. It really works. So um, we went down there, got a lot of great testimonials from uh, third-party experts, uh, consumers. We turned it into a half-hour infomercial that was very educational. It was basically talked about where gum disease came from, how you could fix it, and how Sonicare could help you do that. And again, it was educating the consumer. Once they saw that, um, they basically called up and, and bought the product. And again, just to put this in perspective of the time frame, time frame we're talking about, this was before any e-commerce. And Sonicare, using the direct response marketing, um, grew from zero to about 120 million in the first probably three or four years I was working with them. It's a combination of two things, a great product. You can't, you can't do this if your product doesn't live up to everything you say. So it's always helps to have a great product. And, and then we we're had a being able to use a successful marketing method. Well, and it's that, that combination of the two, but that it's just a great reminder that, you know, different marketing methods can lead to substantial scale. So many people are in the, the this mindset of, well, if it's not on the internet, it has no value. But still to this day, you know, internet as of about right now is still only around 10% of retail sales. That's, mm -hmm. that's 90% of stuff is done in other marketing channels, big box. Uh, even still today, people order stuff on the telephone, everyone. Uh, it happens. And there's a variety of different techniques. Uh, the, as you were talking one of the things that I reflected on is, you know, today's infomercial is just a webinar, right? It's just, there really is no difference between a well-produced and organized webinar, assuming that, you know, is, is put out there, and, and, a, and a really nice uh, infomercial, which obviously still exists today. So I agree. It's basically a sales, a sales presentation. And if people want my magic formula for creating a successful infomercial, and we can go into a lot more detail, but they, I learned this at Dale Carnegie when I was a teenager. Uh, I, I don't know if, again, you might have heard of Dale Carnegie, you know, course. how to win friends and influence people. And um, they had a formula for when you give a speech. It's like, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and tell them what you, what you said. And it's a simple formula, but I followed that. Um, and there's other things that, that obviously make it successful, but that's a basic format. And you talk about a webinar. Um, well, let's just tie it back to something you mentioned before. Some of these brand TV spots, you have no idea what the heck they're talking about. And even when it's over, it's like, what, what was that an advertisement for? And if you look at um, the advertising we did for GoPro, we started every GoPro out with a brand logo. So we're telling them what we're going to say. It's about GoPro. There was user-generated footage in the middle, and we ended it with um, the GoPro brand logo, but also then an offer for the people to do some. We'll get into that story in more detail in, in a few minutes. Yeah, well, and this is this is the great part. You know, each of these stories has a common thread, and for those awesomers out there listening and the really expert marketeers, you should be paying close attention because, you know, Rick is a guy um, you know, through his uh, influence and kind of his systems and understanding, he's been able to build significant brands, brands we've all heard of, Sonicare, George Foreman Grill, GoPro, OxyClean, these types of brands, which are, you know, just the fact that you could say one of those and have pretty much everybody know what they are is extraordinary. But the fact that it's happened again and again shows there's a systemic process that Rick brings to the table. So I'm super excited. So 
as as Sonicare grew, you know, zero to one hundred twenty million, it's just the first you know few years, several years, whatever it was. What was the what was the tipping point for Sonicare to kind of just completely blow up and become ubiquitous? Actually, that's kind of um, uh, a funny story, and you can relate to this. Um, they basically, and again, I'm a big believer in multi-channel marketing. And again, I want to basically build on something you said before. I'm also a big believer in making a product available anywhere the consumer wants to buy it and make it. So, you know, we were selling things on TV, um, you know, right now it needs to be on TV, online, Amazon, and if it makes sense in retail. And again, we can talk about that in a minute. You know, you want you want to basically let consumers buy a product where they're comfortable. But really, the tipping point, believe it or not, sometimes sometimes things happen um, unexpectedly. And Oprah basically had uh, a Sonicare. She had somehow got one from a friend or purchased it. She actually brought it out on her show, and she said, "This will make your gums hum." And it it basically something as simple as that. It, it wasn't planned, basically is kind of exploded into kind of mainstream America. And then, you know, the, 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 the conclusion to the uh, Sonicare story is that they continued to have high growth and Philips Electric bought the company for $500 million uh, about eight or nine years after they started up. So, Amazing. yeah, from startup to sale, that, that, that quickly. Well, if you can't make a half a billion inside of 10 years, you're just not doing the job right. That's my opinion. Uh, well done. Uh, so I love that story. And uh, and we've got a couple other stories we're going to stack into here for uh, the awesomers out there listening. Uh, but we're going to take another quick break and we're going to be right back after this. Empowering. The name says it all. Connecting e-commerce entrepreneurs with great people, ideas, systems, and the services needed to stay business dynamic and to grow. Empowery is a network, a cooperative venture of tools and resources to make you better at what you do, because we love what you do. We are you. Visit Empowery.com to learn more. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, gang, uh, Steve Simpson, we're back again on Awesomers.com, and today we are getting schooled by a brand expert, Rick Cesari. Correct. Oh, Lord, my third time's a charm. And I have to tell you, it was... It was a 50-50 run there. It was my my, uh, my name recognition is is getting worse. Uh, maybe it has to do with my age. I don't know. But uh, Rick, you've just you know, I, I think shared an extraordinary story about the Sonicare, you know, kind of zero to eight or nine years, five hundred million dollar exit, and extraordinary success, along with some serendipity along the way, right? If if Oprah was a tipping point, cool. A lot of people go, oh well, they got lucky. Uh, but luck is a matter of the preparation, right? It's it's all the preparation. It's all the energy. It's all the, the the fact that however Oprah got her hands on that thing, it was a great product, like you said at the beginning, and it did in fact get to her. The, whatever method, obviously it was related to some of the other sales channels you were doing, and she loved it enough on her own, so it wasn't a paid campaign to just endorse it and, and kind of make that pronouncement on on Aaron. And boom, from there it was history. I, I love that story. And uh, I'm hoping you'll share now a little bit about the George Foreman uh, uh, grill because that is one of my favorites. I've owned at least one of those, probably more than one over my time. And 
and to me, it's another fascinating example of how these brands kind of uh, come to life. Yeah, so so that's a great story, and actually, the timing's perfect because uh, the company that bought our juicer business, Trillium Health Product, was called Salton Housewares, and Salton. Uh, one of the reasons they bought our business was that they had retail distribution. That was their main business, and they dealt with all the brick and mortar stores. And um, and but they also wanted to know how we did the marketing for the Juice Man. And they brought me two products. One was a, a slanted grill, and the other one was a homemade bagel maker. And um, I said, "Winners, oh. couple of winners." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and. Um, so the story behind the George Foreman grill is is really interesting because when it was first developed, it was designed as a taco maker. And the reason that it was slanted was that the idea was you cook hamburger meat on it. It was at the edge of the table. They had a little spatula. You'd put your taco shell down below the lip of the machine and you'd put the taco meat in there. And that's how it was being marketed before we started working with Salton. And obviously they weren't doing very good sales-wise. It just was a non-starter. Um, yeah, so none of us have ever heard of the slanted grill taco maker, so that, that's a pretty good indicator, yes. Uh, carry on. So it was interesting. At the time, we, so we started working with them, and, we, and there was also a really good marketing person in place at Salton named Barb Westfield, and, and um, she's a co-author of my uh, new book, which we'll talk about, called Building Billion Dollar Brands. Um, she's been the CMO at Sultan, at Homedics, at Wolfgang Puck, and she knows more about brick and mortar distribution than just about anybody I, I've ever met. Anyway, she she was the CMO there. Her, her and I put our heads together, and and um, George Foreman had just won the the heavyweight championship, and at, he was the oldest person to to regain the championship. I think he was forty six years old. He knocked out Michael Moore. And his agent was looking for a product for George to endorse. And Barb had mentioned this to me. And I said, well, I think that would be good with the grill. And because George was cut, was, was very big he, and was famous for eating hamburgers. So we made the connection, came up with, um, changed the name for whatever it was for the taco maker to, um, people know it as the George Foreman grill, but it was the lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine, which you talk about a mouthful for a name, um, that, that, that was the name of the product. And that's why people started referring it to it as the George Foreman Grill. And I wonder also, if that domain of it is still available, the, the lean, mean, grilling, fat-making, lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine. And then we also came up with a tagline, knocks out the fat, you know, to tie in with, with George Foreman. And really, that was the unique selling proposition of that product. We mentioned unique selling proposition before. You could grill your favorite foods, hamburgers, bacon, and you could see the grease and fat channel away from the food. And so people thought or believed that they could eat their favorite foods and it was a little bit healthier than if it was to sit in a pan with all the fat. And we basically visually you know, showed that. We showed the fat channeling away. We showed cooking hamburgers in a frying pan and then sitting in the fat and, and really just making that comparison and George was, um, you know, just an awesome, I love, first of all, I love the name of your podcast or that you've mentioned awesome. Awesomers, yeah, baby. Awesomers and awesome. I use awesome all the time. George was just an awesome spokesperson. And, um, and basically the combination of really showing what this product could do, uh, 
not only removing the fat, it, it was the first grill that grilled on both sides at the same time. So you could cook a hamburger in twice the speed. And so when we made our half hour TV show, which could be a half hour webinar or, you know, an ad on Facebook, the two things we showed were removing the fat and cooking more quickly. And those were the differences in our product versus the other grills out there at time. And then George was a way to basically um, open doors and uh, kind of tying a spokesperson to a product. Um, but that a, is a, it's, it's not a, a direct logical um, association, right? It's not like uh, the, there's very few people I think today that would say, hey, I, I'm uh, thinking of a grilling item and I'm gonna go find a, you know, the heavyweight champion or the mixed martial arts champion. It's, that's just not a logical thing. That's a genius and, and extraordinary kind of reach to put those two things together. Yeah, and, and um, you know, George turned out to be just an, a, a, an amazing spokesperson. Uh, people really loved him because when he regained, you know, you see um, heavyweight boxing champions or whatever, and they had these giant, you know, entourages and our mixed martial arts champion. George used to travel around with one person and he, you know, his backstory was really interesting. When he lost, um, part of his fame came because he lost a famous fight to Muhammad Ali in Zaire, Africa. And um, he basically went into retirement for 10 years. And then when he came out and, and won again, that, that got him quite a bit of notoriety. But in that time, he really, he became a, um, a uh, minister. And every Sunday he would be teaching a sermon in downtown Houston. And, um, he had a very good story that was uh, to, to promote and people, he was a very likable guy and just kind of a funny thing. Um, in addition to doing the television, we also did a lot of QVC. And one of the things, you know, you get um, again at the time, this was our instant feedback. You would get instant feedback when certain sales message or something happened. So every time George took a bite of a hamburger, the phones would light up. And for whatever reason, when he was eating, um, it would help generate more sales. And I don't, I don't know the psychological reason behind that, but it really did. So every commercial we made from that point on, we had showed more of George eating and, you know, we basically used what worked and used it in our advertising. That is a fascinating detail. And again, one of those counterintuitive, um, ideas, you know, if we're writing marketing scripts or writing uh, commercial scripts or webinar scripts or infomercial scripts, how uh, very few of us are going to go, you know what, let's make sure we get the subject to eat a, a, a certain number of times, right? That's probably the least attractive idea we could come up with. But George mm -hmm. Foreman, because he was such a big personality and a big guy, yeah. that, that, and, you know, he just made things. Look, I remember these commercials. I remember thinking to myself, George Foreman has no idea how that grill is made. Yeah, it's got his name on it. He's sitting there, and he's as happy as a guy can be, and he's showing us how to cook a hamburger. This is a crazy thing, and yet, sure enough, on my you know countertop, there's at least one George Foreman grill there for at least ten years. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's a, a really amazing, and, and we felt perfectly fine about it. So my my memory of the George Foreman grill it, it dates back. You know, I don't even what what year were these sold? Uh, the, the the heavy time of George Foreman grills. Well, we launched it in 1996, and so from probably 97 through 99 were were the big growth years um, for that 
for that product, or, or probably 97 through 2001, to be honest with you. It, it was such a powerful commercial. And again, it's counterintuitive to think of coaching up the, the, the star to go, hey, make sure you eat a bite, you know, here, and we're going to do close-ups, right? That the opposite way that you would, you would script something is what actually ended up working. And this is, this is one of those marketing lessons. Um, you know, Rick already said he doesn't know the psychological reason. I certainly don't. But when you find, and this is the, the ultimate lesson, when you find something that works, regardless of why it works, the, the why is quite irrelevant, you keep using it, right? And that's ultimately what you guys decided to do in every subsequent commercial, every subsequent uh, infomercial you made sure George was chomping down on a big bite. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that goes back to something, again, that's relevant back then, but relevant today, even more relevant, is being able to test your commercials and finding out what works and what doesn't work. And when you do find that one thing that works, I've always found in all of these projects and that we've been talking about and the ones we're still going to talk about, you kind of find the key that people respond to. And once you find that key, you can then take that and build a really, really big business leveraging that one idea or the one thing that gets people excited and gets them to respond. It's not always obvious what that is, but um, once you find that, and you do that through trial and error, I mean, nobody's an overnight success. You, you test shows. I mean, one of the things, the interesting things about uh, George's show is a perfect example. The very first infomercial we tested didn't work. Um, and we started, we thought it'd be really cool. Again, and this is, a, is an important lesson. Um, we thought it'd be really cool to start the infomercial out. We, we called up HBO and bought 15 seconds where George was knocking out Michael Moore. And we started out the show with a boxing sequence. And that was not really understanding who our target demographic was, which was primarily women. And women, I'm making generalizations here, but a lot of women do not like boxing or, or, or violent. So we were turning off our primary target at the very beginning of the show. So we came in, re-edited the show, took out the boxing, and we actually raised the price from 59 to 79. And we did those two things and the product took off. And again, it's um, a function of testing. This, this uh, first of all, the lesson of testing, you know, you've heard Rick who's built these, you know, massive, massive brands. And we're going to talk more about his book here in a minute. Um, but, you know, these, these brands that have, you know, such extraordinary power and, you know, have the potential to be billion dollar brands. And he still is talking about testing and talking about making mistakes, by the way, right? <laughs> this idea, I'm sure that HBO wasn't like, oh, yeah, you can have this footage for free, right? How much do they charge you for the footage? $15,000 to yeah. buy the footage. So they had to pay a, a big amount of money. They put that lead in. It turned off their viewers, which obviously they figured out subsequent to that first ad running. And was there any point after that first commercial, you guys were like, oh, I guess this isn't going to work. Let's, let's roll it out and forget about it. You know, there's always that thought process um, when you're you're testing a new product because again, this is the very beginning. There there weren't a lot of success. The, the the product that evolved into the George Foreman Grill wasn't successful, and that's really where perseverance pays off. And there's you know, there the CEO of the company could have said, "Ah, we tested it, didn't work," and we just said, well, you know, let's give it another try. And fortunately, when we made the changes and brought it back out, 
um, it, 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 it worked well. So again, it's another lesson of not giving up, um, and basically following through and look at where it could lead you. you Just imagine if the CEO or Rick himself or anybody on the team at the time had said, you know what? I thought this was a good idea, but it turns out people don't like boxing and cooking uh, after all. And that, that whole thing, that this whole genre that we all now know very well, the George Foreman grill, that could have been gone. It could have never existed. Uh, yet by simply sticking to it and then having the, uh, maybe the, the, I don't know, the, the being humble enough to say, what do we do wrong? What can we do better? How can we improve this? Yeah. That is enough to to be able to persevere. And I think that's a big lesson. You know, you guys weren't caught up in the ego of, well, no, this thing is perfect. We just need to get those stupid customers to pay better attention. You guys retooled the thing, right? No, absolutely. And that's a that's an important point you bring up right there is, and and one of, that's number three on my list of five keys to building the brand. We talked about USP, unique selling proposition, positioning. Number three is always listen to the customer. And basically, you'll find out more, and we'll talk about how that plays a role in all the different products, but their customer is the best source of feedback to tell you what they like about the product, what they don't like, and how you can make improvements. And um, really, the customers were sending us a message saying that they didn't like what we were doing, and we were able to talk to some of them and really identify what our target market was and make changes and then make the project work. So this, again, just trying to tie parallels into modern day or relevant things for the awesomers out there listening. When, when you are thinking about developing a product and you start your research, typically on Amazon, because that's the, uh, the easiest and, and most likely place to, to begin a search, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to look at the reviews. Right. And that is listening to customers. So you get in there and you look at the good reviews and you see, oh, what's positive about this thing? And then you also go look at the negative reviews. It goes, how's this thing falling down? And if you can enhance the positives or at least retain the positives and eliminate the negatives, you've already incrementally made you know, a, an improvement in the product. And now it has a potential to live. But fundamentally, I couldn't agree more with Rick's um, assertion that if you ask customers, they will tell you it, it's so often we we are running around and, you know, we don't know why this is, doesn't work. We don't know why this doesn't work. But you started your process with asking customers. You talked about this at the trade show with the cameras and, yeah, and talking to the dentist. You know, if you engage your audience, the earlier on, the better. I think you're going to be really surprised at some of the things they tell you. Yeah, and to this day, uh, whenever we start working with a company for the first time or a new product for the first time, the very first thing I ask them is, I want to speak to some of your customers. Do you have a database? Some some people are just 100% on Amazon. They might not, you know, have a database. But uh, as many many companies do, and the very first thing I'll do is is basically my team will call up, set up uh, where we talk to 10 to 15 people. We'll bring them to uh, a house, and I'll sit down and interview these people. And really, it tells me a lot of the things I need to know about the product. And again, you, you meant what people like, what they don't like. And I really pay attention to, in, in this case, you know, negative reviews on Amazon, but the things people don't like and how can we overcome those objections or the things that the reasons why they might not buy the product. Yeah. It's so often a surprise in what 
is really motivating and, and pushing these customers to make decisions. I remember a, a quick story, and, and because of Rick's extraordinary experience, we're probably going to end up uh, doing a back-to-back -back episode or a subsequent episode to talk about GoPro and OxyClean. But a, a, just a quick little tiny story from my background. One time we launched a product. It's actually pr provided by a manufacturer, and it had huge apparent value. I mean, it was it was just really big and thick and you know luxurious and and it seemed very clear that this had high high apparent value and my at, at the time you know I was still learning and and you know my weak mind says you know what, I want to sell a ton of this so let's really lower the price and let's let's get at a low price so we had this really huge big beautiful high apparent value item at a very very low price and it would not sell and after a month or two and by the way with considerable focus of marketing energy and you know, all the direct marketing and, and things that we did right. to try to support it, it still would not sell. And so finally, we just put it up to, you know, kind of uh, not just a regular price, but probably a regular price plus 30 or 40% because we were we were mad at the product as if it was responsible somehow. Right. And believe it or not, and of course, Rick already knows, uh, or he can infer the end of the story, the sales blew up. The, the product started selling and it reminded me of that story because of what you said. Not only did you retool the episode, you changed the price from 59 to 79. And mm -hmm. I think most marketeers would have said, let's change it from 59 to 29 and see if that helps. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that is not always what the customer needs to see. And that's not what makes them happy. Yeah. So that's a that's a great story. And, and again, it further endorses one, one of the things whenever I bring a product to market, I always and again, this comes from research, talking to people, whatever, but I always try to launch it at the highest reasonable price because it's very easy to come down, but it's hard to go, go back up. And then you're testing really what the marketplace would be willing to pay for the product. And there's, a, again, a, another element of human psychology here where there's a certain price point where people think, well, it must be cheap are not a good product if it's a certain price, but by putting it up at a more of a luxury price point, they feel better about buying the product. And it doesn't work, you know, that I'm not saying this works across the board, go and raise your prices on all your products, but it's something you should, when you're launching a new product, absolutely test different price points, including the higher ones. Well, and the other thing it helps you do is it helps you pay for marketing and it helps you pay for high customer service. That's the, the more, that's the more you true, right? And because you become embittered when a customer is like, you know, hey, I have a problem with this. And you're like, hey, man, you paid such a low price. Why are you bothering me for? Right. But if they pay a fair, reasonable price, then you should be able to offer that support. You should be able to support the marketing. So yeah, that, really that's, a circle. that's a hugely important point. Almost every product we talk about is in order for them to be a success, they had to be at a high enough price point. So there were enough margin dollars to pay for the advertising, to, to provide the great customer service, um, all the things that you need to do. And, you know, you look at companies that are very successful, and I'll just pull one out of the air, Starbucks. You know, underneath of everything else, there's huge margins when they sell you an espresso and with milk in it. And um, that huge margin is what facilitates them being able to be a global brand. And 
you know, I, that's one of the very first things when I'm looking at a product, we kind of do in a financial analysis and the numbers have to work because sometimes you might have the best product in the world. Um, but there isn't enough margin dollars between your cost of manufacturing and what you can sell it for that, you know, you could, that's going to enable you to use to have advertising dollars and marketing dollars and customer service dollars. And we can eliminate a lot of products that way. And so every once in a while you find the right product with the right margins and, and usually that the, that the consumer likes or a mass consumer will like, and those are the ones you can usually turn into big, big businesses. I couldn't have said it better myself, Rick, we're against the clock. So I'm going to, I want to have you back and, and get part two of this extraordinary journey. Um, I love it. I know awesomers out there love it. Will you join me again uh, and, and do a part two with me? Yeah, I'd love to. We've still got a lot of great things to talk about. We sure do. We're going to get into the book. We're going to get into and all the links. Um, and awesomers, you'll be able to go into the show notes and get the, the details we've already covered so far. There's so much here. This is really exciting stuff. And uh, I thank you again for your time today, Rick. It is a really uh, a great pleasure to uh, kind of recount these historic moments in, in marketing and branding with you. Great. Thanks, thanks, Steve. You, you've been really easy to talk to, and I really appreciate being able to share experience, uh, experience and knowledge with your listeners. Of course. It's our pleasure. Awesomers, we'll be right back after this. Hey, Amazon Marketplace professionals. This is Parsimony ERP, and we get one question over and over. Can you please tell me exactly what Parsimony does? Well, we'll try, but this is only a 30-second spot, so we're going to have to hurry. Connect to your Seller Central account and pull all the new orders. Enter the orders with all customer data. Enter all of the Amazon fees and charges. Store them at the item level. Generate profit and loss reports at the SKU level. Automatically generate income statements. Handle multiple companies. Handle multiple brands. Handle multiple currencies. Facilitate budgets and forecasts. Store all customer interactions in a sophisticated CRM system. Manage your supply chain. Budget and task management. Maintain an audit log. Hey, you get it. That's parsimony, P-A-R-S-I-M-O-N-Y.com. Parsimony.com. We've got that. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Well, I tell you what, uh, we have delivered yet again, I think, something very special. And Rick has, uh, what a great sport to, to come on for a second time. So this is just part one, by the way, of our two-part series with Rick Cesari. I, I know I mispronounce his name about every two seconds, so my apologies to Rick. Um, but his experience and his knowledge and just his sense of humor and his, you know, just kind of a fun guy to be around. Really, really amazing fella. And we're, we're sure glad he joined us. Today was just the first half of that uh, two-part series. So don't forget to join us tomorrow where we go into the next bit as well. And, you know, today we covered, again, Juice Band, Sonicare, and George Foreman Grill. But tomorrow we're going to dive deep into the other two really cool brands that you've probably heard of, which are GoPro and OxyClean. All of these names are such amazing brands. And your chance to kind of talk to one of the, the key architects and engineers of these billion dollar brands is something that I think is quite special. And I feel privileged to just be on the, the other line with him. And I was lucky enough to have him come to the Catalyst 88 Mastermind Group recently and talk to the team there in Seattle at length. And it was just a really great experience. So uh, anyway, this has been a great episode. I can't wait to uh, have you join us tomorrow as well. Don't forget, this is episode number 55 of the awesomers.com podcast series. And all you have to do is go to awesomers.com slash 55 uh, to get all the show notes, details, and bonus links and things like that. Well, we've done it again, everybody. We have another episode of the Awesomers podcast ready for the world. 
Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you've enjoyed our program today. Now's a good time to take a moment to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Heck, you could even leave a, a review if you wanted. Awesomers around you will appreciate your help. It's only with your participation and sharing that we'll be able to achieve our goals. Our success is literally in your hands. Thank you again for joining us. We are at your service. Find out more about me, Steve Simonson, our guest, team, and all the other Awesomers involved at awesomers.com. Thank you again.